many years ago. I'm sitting on my couch watching TV, and my wife, Melissa, was trying to tell me something. And just without thinking instinctually, I raised the remote and turned the volume up on the TV (laughs) because I couldn't hear the TV over whatever she was saying. I learned a lesson about um, how hard my wife punches. She hits hard. Uh, And I also learned a valuable lesson about communication. So to this day, if I'm watching TV or looking at something on my phone and she's talking, hit mute, hit pause, something like that. And that old bruise throbs in my arm to remind me. In Daniel chapter 9... Uh, it's a weird location to learn a lesson about spiritual renewal. Think about what we've read and studied so far in the book of Daniel, especially since chapter 7. Chapter 7, we read of a vision of four beasts, all of them grotesque and brutal. And then in chapter 8 last week, we read about the goat kingdom and the ram kingdom and the little horn that just reaps destruction everywhere he goes. Chapter 7 and 8 have been really heavy and really thick and really scary. And so we get to chapter 9 and we might think, okay, we're going to step back into another intense vision. There is another vision in chapter 9, but before we hear the vision, we have to hear Daniel pray. And it's in Daniel's prayer here in verses 1 through 19 that you and I learn an incredible lesson about spiritual renewal, about personal revival. It happens in the life of every Christian that we face seasons where we just grow dry in our walk with the Lord. And it could be for any number of reasons. It could be because of sin in our lives that just runs amok. It could be because of some circumstance we're facing that leaves us battered and bruised. And there could be any number of reasons why we would feel dry before the Lord. The Bible loses its wonder. Our prayer life dries up. Worship feels obligatory, perfunctory. Uh, and in those seasons, we need a turn. We need times of refreshing. We need to come back to the Lord. It's amazing to me that in the middle of all these visions and all these big questions we would have from the text, we hear a man pray and we learn about spiritual renewal. And so my goal today is to lead us towards spiritual renewal. I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ today. Maybe you came in here very dry. You came in out of obligation. This is just what you do. Well, we're going to hear Daniel pray. And in his prayer is an invitation to you, an invitation to me to come back to the Lord, to seek forgiveness, to confess our sin, and to walk with him in a new and a fresh way. Daniel's prayer is going to give us four steps in turning our lives back to the Lord. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 19. It says this, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. 
So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown towards you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we've sinned against him. He's carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all he's done, but we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Powerful words. An important prayer. And before we dive into the next vision, we have to pause here and consider what this teaches us about our own relationship with the Lord. And in this prayer, Daniel charts for us a path back to God. If you find yourself spiritually broken today, this passage is for you. So let me show you in this passage four steps on the path to spiritual renewal. The first step would be this. Quite simply, we need to acknowledge our sin. If you and I are going to renew our relationship with the Lord, if we're going to find forgiveness and walk with him, we start by acknowledging our sin. And we see this demonstrated in the first three verses of this chapter. The first three verses of chapter 9 really just give us a bunch of setting information, but it's really important setting. Uh, Daniel tells us it's the first year of King Darius. That means Babylon has been destroyed and now Persia 
is the world power. He's gone from living under a Babylonian flag to living under a Persian flag. He says it's the first year of King Darius. That means chapter 9 happens around the same time as chapter 6 in the whole lion's den scene. And then he tells us in verse 2, he says that he read the book of Jeremiah and he learned from it that the exile of God's people was supposed to last 70 years. Now, how cool is it that Daniel read the same book of Jeremiah that you have in your hands this morning? I love these places in the Bible where the Bible references the Bible. To know that Daniel sat down and read through the scroll of Jeremiah and he learned from it things that informed his praying and informed his day-to-day life. I mean, that fills me with so much joy. It makes me want to spend time with Jeremiah as well. And so he reads in the book of Jeremiah that the length of the exile is supposed to be 70 years. Where did he read that? Well, I want to show you. He read it in one place. He read it was in Jeremiah 29. And Jeremiah 29.10 says this. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Now this promise was given to God's people long before they went into exile. Long before Daniel prays chapter 9, God gave this promise to his people. You're going to face judgment for your sin. You're going to be exiled, but after 70 years, I'll bring you back home. So Daniel knows this. He knows 70 years is the appointed time, but as he looks around, it doesn't look like a return to Jerusalem is happening anytime soon. And why is that? What's the holdup here? So I want you to look at the rest of Jeremiah's words in this section in chapter 29, and I want you to see if you can answer this question as I read. Why hasn't God freed his people from exile yet? That's the question. Here's what the rest of the passage says. God says, For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You'll call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. Why, after 70 years, has God not yet freed his people from exile? It is because they have not called on God, nor prayed to God, nor searched for God with all their heart. They've grown quite comfortable in their exile. They've made lives for themselves. They have their jobs, their homes, their families, they have their worship of sorts. If you were to ask any one of these exiles, are you Jewish? Are you a part of the covenant community? They would say, why, yes, I am. And yet here they are in exile and have not yet turned back to God. You see, the exile is two things. One, it's punishment. It's God being faithful to his word He's given grace upon grace upon grace after his people have turned to false gods over and over again. And so this exile is in part God being faithful to, uh, to his word to punish this sin. But this exile is also an invitation 
to be sober-minded, to look at the way things are and to say, we've got to get back to God. We've got to return to Him. We've got to walk with Him. He's the God who's true. He's faithful to His Word. I need to leave these false gods and come back. But the people don't seem to be doing that. This is why, according to verse 3, Daniel stops eating, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He's grieving Israel's continued idolatry and their failure to turn back to God. It makes no difference for them to get back to Jerusalem if they don't get there with a changed heart. Changed location, but the same heart is a bad deal. They need new hearts before the Lord. Now, this is where I'm obligated by law to say a quick word about Jeremiah 29.11. One of the most loved verses in the Old Testament. We love this verse. I know the plans I have for you. And we love it so much that we rip it out of Jeremiah 29, and we just slap it on any football game or weight loss program we want to, and then pretend like that's what this verse is referring to. Uh, But it's not. This verse is not about God accomplishing your goals. It's not even about God charting you through the hard day. There's verses for that. This is not the one. Jeremiah 29, 11, when God says, "I, I know the plans I have for you, It's an invitation to return. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to a fresh walk with the Lord. I know the plans I have for you. Do you know what God's plans are for you? They are your holiness, your sanctification, your union with him. That's God's plan for you. Jeremiah 29, 11 means so much more than what we've given it credit for. Now, here's a hard question we have to ask ourselves in this chapter, and really, as we read through the book of Daniel, one of the hardest questions we have to ask ourselves is this, who represents me in this story? Now, I know who I want to be. I want to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are brave before Nebuchadnezzar, and then get thrown into the fiery furnace and walk out unscathed. I want to be Daniel, who disobeys the king's command and therefore is thrown into the lion's den and the next morning walks out unscathed. I want to be Daniel in chapter 9 who grieves over the sins of the people and prays to God for rescue from their sin and the tyranny of the nations. But that's not me. I'm the nameless person who bows to Nebuchadnezzar's statue in order to not be thrown in the fire. And I'm the nameless exile who chooses to not pray to my God for 30 days in order to escape the lion's den. And I'm not Daniel praying. I'm the nameless person not praying, comfortable in my exile and in my sin before God. The path to a renewed relationship with God begins with acknowledging our sin. Daniel grieved over his sin. When's the last time you shed tears for your sin? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus says these very familiar words. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you know what kind of mourning Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 5, verse 4? It's not the sorrow that comes from grief. It's the sorrow that comes from sin. You see, confession is one thing. Contrition is something entirely different altogether. There are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever experience them for our sin. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus says, 
Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. How does God comfort us? In an awareness and an acknowledgement of our sin. The comfort of God is not some sort of heavenly Kleenex and a pat on the head and a go get them, bucko, you'll be okay. God comforts us. How does God comfort us in our sin? He comforts us by giving us forgiveness freely, by sending his son to die on the cross. I don't want you to miss this point because speakers are being moody. God comforts you in your sin by sending his son to die on the cross in your place. That's where our comfort comes from. All the wrath that our sin works up is eaten by Jesus Christ at the cross. And in its place, God gives us righteousness. He justifies us. He gives us his holiness. He forgives us and saves us. So the way back to God begins with an acknowledgement of our sin. It's a prayer that might sound something like this. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What's the second step? After we've acknowledged our sin, Daniel shows us the importance of confession. We need to confess our sin. Uh, The bulk of this passage, 1 through 19, the bulk of it is Daniel's confession of the sins of God's people. Verses 4 through 15, nothing but confession. There's nothing else in that prayer but confession of sin. Now, when it comes to the practice of confession, I I think Baptists generally fall short. I've seldom heard confession preached or encouraged. I've been taught to pray. I've been taught to share my faith. I've been taught to read the Bible. I've never been taught to confess. And a question we would ask as good Baptists is, well, why do I need to confess sin if I've already been saved? That's a great question. And here's why. Confession is not something we do in order to be saved or to hold on to our salvation or to stay saved. Confession is what we do because we are saved. It's true that at the moment of faith, the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we are as saved as we will ever be. We're not saved light, and then we improve on that salvation through good works or confession. We are saved completely, totally justified by God once and for all in that moment forever. So confession is not a salvation issue. Confession, as we walk in our relationship with Christ, is a sanctification issue. God has loved me in my sin, rescued me from the penalty of my sin. And as I walk with him, I become more and more aware of the sin in my heart. All the ways my thoughts betray him and my actions betray him. And as I become aware of those things, because I am saved, I want to mind them out of my soul, out of my life. I have confidence to come in confession to God because he's already saved, already loved, already rescued. And so Daniel gives us some insight here as to what confession in our lives might look like. There's three things that jump out to me in the way he confesses his sin. First of all, Daniel confesses sin in general. He looks at the landscape of things, and verse 5 is one example of this. He just says, God, we have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands. So when we confess our sin to God, there's one way in which we're confessing sin in general. I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've broken your laws. I, I know I'm not walking in the way I should with you. 
But Daniel doesn't just confess general sin, he confesses specific sin also. Verse 6 is an example of this. He says, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. God, you've spoken, we have not listened, we have not obeyed. That's specific sin. And so as I sit before God and examine my soul, specific sins might come to mind. It's one thing to pray a general prayer, like, God, forgive me for all my sin. It's another thing to pray a specific prayer, identifying, naming sins as they are. We need this practice because we need to face our sin. Even as children of the Most High, we need to face the sin that still plagues us. So I I need to pray, not just, God, I'm a sinner. I need to pray, God, I lied. God, I stole. God, I've broken your law. I need to name it. When I name it, it carries weight. Not only am I naming sins I've committed, I'm, I'm naming the good things that I haven't done. James 4.17 says, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't, sins. God, I have not loved my neighbor as myself. God, my anger is dictating my relationship with people around me. And God, I have not loved, I have not forgiven, I have whatever the good thing is that we've omitted, those are things that we would confess as well. Daniel also confesses sin corporately. And this is something I'm still working to wrap my mind around to understand it. Daniel identifies himself among those who have sinned against God. We probably wouldn't expect that from Daniel, who walks with God, hears from God, has always been faithful his whole life. You might expect this prayer to sound like this, for Daniel to pray, God, forgive them for their sin. But that's not how he prays. He prays, we've sinned. Forgive our sin. I count 12 different times in these verses where Daniel lumps himself in with the body of believers who are sinning against God. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We've not sought the favor of our Lord. Now, the only corporate confession I've seen practiced has been corporate confession of sin for the sake of our nation. And the desire in that confession is we've got to turn our country back to God. But that's not the kind of confession Daniel's doing here. Daniel is confessing the sin of the covenant community. Daniel is confessing the sin of the church. Let's just be real honest. It's easy for us to look at our nation and recognize those sins and to grieve them, and we should. But it requires a depth of spiritual maturity for us to turn our eyes inward and say, God, we are your people, and yet... We don't love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. It's the confession of the covenant community. This is where, if you come from a Catholic background, you might say, ha-ha, confession, I got that locked up. Take that, Baptists. And there are several things about the Catholic practice that, quite frankly, I find admirable. Um, the, the regularity, the intended regularity of it being practiced almost like a, a, a spiritual discipline. I think that's admirable. Uh, the examination of conscience, sort of mining deep, asking intentional questions. I, I think there's something in that practice that's valuable. But here's where, um, here's where 
uh, we differ. At the end of your Catholic confession, the priest offers you absolution. But brother and sister, no priest absolves us of our sins, only Jesus Christ. And when we confess our sins to him, he is faithful to forgive. Our absolution comes from Jesus Christ who died in our place for our sin. Therefore, let us acknowledge our sin and let us confess our sin to him. Third step in our spiritual renewal is that we would rest in God's promises. So Daniel spends the bulk of his time confessing sin, and it's not until he gets almost to the very end of his prayer that he begins to make requests of God. He has 16, 17 verses of confession and just maybe about five verses of petition. Just that in itself is really informative, I think, for the way we pray. I don't know about you, but when I pray so many times, I just come to God with my shopping cart and I say, God, I need this, 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 and this. Fix this thing. And, and God, here's how you're going to fix it too. In Jesus' name, amen. And off I go. But how often do we just sit with God and linger in praise or adoration or thanksgiving or confession? Daniel's not in a hurry to get to the petition. He, he's okay lingering in confession. I think there's something informative for the way we pray. Now, what is it that Daniel asks for when he finally gets to the request? What is he asking for? Well, his requests are all directly related to Israel's sin. So in verse 16, he asks for God's wrath on their sin to end. In verse 17, he asks for God to hear their prayer and to make his face shine on them again. Verse 18, he asks God to hear and see the plight of his people. In verse 19, he prays in short, rapid-fire phrases. He says, Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. Those are his requests. God, deal with our sin. Lift this from us. Now, if Daniel read Jeremiah 29, I'm confident that he also read Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 29, you'll remember, it it numbers the exile. gives a date to the exile. Seventy years, God's going to restore. But do you know what Daniel read in chapter 30? In Jeremiah 30, verse 10, he read these words. God says, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged, Israel, for without fail, I will save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their captivity. So don't miss this. When Daniel prays for God to end this wrath and forgive his people, he's asking God to fulfill a promise God has already made. God has already said yes to forgiveness. He's already said yes to restoration and reconciliation. And that's why Daniel prays with such urgency. God, you've said yes to this already. So, Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. And when you and I come to God with our sin and we ask for forgiveness, we are resting in a promise that God has already made. You don't have to convince him to forgive you. We acknowledge our sin, we confess our sin, we rest in God's promises for forgiveness. Now, there are many lies that Satan will use to convince you that you are far from forgiveness or you are beyond it. He might tell you that your sin is too bad to be forgiven. He might tell you that you've got to prove your worthiness to God first before you can be forgiven. He might just say, you know what, God's done with you. He doesn't love you because you've sinned so much. 
But I want you to believe the promise of God over the lies of Satan this morning. Romans 5.8. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Your sin doesn't turn God away. Your sin draws Christ to the cross. He goes there for you on your behalf because he loves you. And yes, we're sinners. And yes, our sin is gross. And yes, our sin deserves punishment. And that's what makes grace so amazing and his love so incredible. He died for sinners like us. Don't ever doubt the love of God for you and his readiness to forgive. When you ask for forgiveness, he's already said yes. Last step in this journey back to the Lord. We're acknowledging sin, confessing sin, rest in God's promises, and then finally rejoice in God's compassion. What is it that gave Daniel confidence that God would act on behalf of his sinful and exiled people? Well, peppered throughout this prayer are these repeated references to the incredible character of God. In Verse 4, he appeals to God's character, the opening line of the prayer. He calls him God great and awe-inspiring who keeps his gracious covenant. But verse 18 is the one that does it for me that I think is the real money verse. At the end of verse 18, Daniel prays this. He says, For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Why do I come to God with my sin, confess, and ask for forgiveness? Why can I do that? Because of God's abundant compassion. I don't drag before God all of my righteous deeds and say, See God, I was baptized. See God, I went to church. See God, I I was good to my neighbor. See God, I didn't do all these other bad things. I have no argument to plead my case before him because everything in my life testifies to my unworthiness. My bad is worse than I think, and my good is not nearly as impressive as I think. So I don't come to God based on what I've done as if that would sway him. Rather, I come to God because of his abundant compassion. He's the God who loves sinners. That's good news for you. It's great news for me. Here's what we can't miss about God's love. God's love is not a love that swoops in and affirms us in our sinfulness. It is a love that rescues us out of our sinfulness. God doesn't just say, I love you and leave us where we are. He says, I love you, and he takes us out of the domain of hell, out of an eternal death, and he gives us eternal life. Can you imagine this type of scenario? You go to the doctor. And the diagnosis is very serious. And all the tests confirm that things are bad for you. And then the doctor walks in and he says, Cody, I love you. And I love your sickness. And then he walks out of the room with no medicine, no plan, no surgery, no help. I love you and I love your sickness. We would not be okay with that. A God that loves us but doesn't rescue us is like a doctor who gives compliments instead of medicine. He rescues us from the domain of sin once and for all. And God's love for us is seen in this, that he gave his son to die for us. We can rejoice in God's love. I come to him with my sin with confidence because of his abundant compassion. So this morning, Daniel's given us four steps to spiritual renewal. 
He wants us to acknowledge our sin, confess our sin, rest in God's promises, and rejoice in God's compassion. This truth has been so important to God's people for as long as God has had a people. The truth that God, that God forgives sinners, that God restores broken people, God gives new life. And it's been so important to the church that we have chosen to invest this truth in the hearts and minds of our children from their infancy. And here's the liturgy we use to do that. It contains these words. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide, he will wash away my sin, let his little child come in. Little child, it's time to come home. We're going to, man, we've battled through this service this morning. We're going to close in a different way today, a little bit of a different way. Um, I've... After sitting with Daniel in his prayer, I just I felt like we, we need to respond here. I, I think when, when God's invitation is so clear and, and so direct that we can't wait till later to respond. We need in the here and now to say yes to God's invitation. So I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And I'm going to ask you to pray three different prayers. We're going to pray a prayer of confession, a prayer of forgiveness, and a prayer of praise. And here's what we'll do. Um, we'll start with prayer of confession, and I'll give you just some time in silence to pray before God on your own. What are you confessing? What are you owning and acknowledging of your sin before God? And then we'll close out that time by reading a corporate prayer of confession together. Uh, those prayers are taken from the little prayer book called Valley of Vision, so there's a lot of these and thous in it but they just add to the richness of the prayer. And so we're going to confess, we're going to ask forgiveness, we're going to praise God for what he's done for us. This is a time for you and I to come to the Lord for renewal in our walk with him. So let's start with confession this morning, and would you take a few moments in silence just to voice your prayer to the Lord. And now, brothers and sisters, would you look at the screen, and would you pray with me these words? Oh, holy God, I have sinned times without number and been guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to find thy mind in thy word, of neglect to seek thee in my daily life. My transgressions and shortcomings present me with a list of accusations, but I bless thee that they will not stand against me For all have been laid on Christ. Let's next take a minute in prayer for forgiveness. We have confessed our sin. And now let's come in the confidence of God's abundant compassion and ask his forgiveness. Now, brothers and sisters, would you join me in praying this prayer to the Lord? Gracious Lord, thy name is love. Look to the cross of thy beloved Son and view the preciousness of his atoning blood. 
Listen to his never-failing intercession and whisper to my heart, thy sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. Lie down in peace. And would you take a moment to praise God? Next minute, would you lift prayers of praise and thanksgiving and adoration for the God who loves you and forgives you? And let's join our voices together in this prayer of praise. God of my salvation, three persons and one God, I bless and praise thee for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. Let me live and pray as one loved by you. As our praise team comes, I want you to keep your eyes up here, and I want to offer a prayer for you, but eye to eye. God, thank you for these precious children of yours, every name you know and every story you know, and not one in here has ever been alone. Not one in here has ever been beyond your grace and your love. And God, we need you. We need you so much day by day, every step, all we do. Father, we need you. Thank you that we don't have to beg you or plead you to come to our aid. You're already here. So, Father, fill our hearts with joy. Strengthen us for the days ahead. Lord, let your grace give fuel to our worship and strength to our walk, that we would love you with all that we are in our marriages and in our parenting and grandparenting and in our singlehood and in our hard days and our great days, Lord, let it all be for your name and your glory, that together we would be one family, we would be one church, one body, living for your name and your glory and bringing many with us as we share the gospel and point them to you. Father, thank you for what you are doing in us and among us and all God's people said, amen.